You are listening to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings on Snapchat, that's with two Bs, and the main man, Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on Twitter. And we say about Snapchat and Twitter, but it'd be awesome to meet in real life. And now we can, as we'd love to see you at Sasta Annual 2017 and join me and Jason for mojitos. And this has been made possible by the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lemkin, who's recognised my love of mojitos and has allowed me to have a happy hour of mojitos. So I would love to see you there. And all you need to do is enter the promo code Drinks with Harry those three words drinks with harry when you purchase your tickets and you'll not only get a whopping 20 percent off the ticket price but you'll also receive one of the hottest tickets in town oh yes an invite to our mojito party what is not to love about that but back to work and to the show today and this one i really was so excited for as we welcome ryan smith now ryan is the founder and ceo at qualtrics an online survey company with 1200 employees and a valuation of more than a billion dollars they have backing from some of the world's best investors including the likes of sequoia Excel, Insight Venture Partners, and more incredible investors. In 2014, they raised their 150 million Series B. But as for Ryan, there are many awesome things. First, he has built Qualtrics from Utah, allowing him to gain perspective outside of the traditional tech bubbles. Second, he held off on attaining VC funding for many years, despite the common belief that it's necessary for unicorn growth. And finally, he has the most incredible work-life balance I think I've ever seen. And if you haven't already checked out his piece in Forbes, then it really is a must. However, it is now time to meet the man himself, and I'm delighted to welcome Ryan Smith, founder and CEO at Qualtrics. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Ryan, it's so fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. Big fan of Jason's. Well, thank you so much. And I'd love to get started today with a two to three minute founding story of Qualtrics and, and how the business really got off the ground in the early days. So starting a business was very different in 2002 than it is now. It's not like you got in a room and ran an MBA exercise and said, hey, look, we're going to go grab a business idea and then just go. You know, the word startup was not what it is, right? now. I mean, it was much more by accident. You know, my father and I started the business. He's a he's a scientist. He's a researcher and academic. And he was always trying to figure out ways to duplicate himself. And, you know, in his world, for him to get or make any money or get published, he had to do a ton of research. You know, everything was called research back then, you know, and, and, and nowadays it's become way more mainstream. And that was kind of what we set out to tackle to do is like, how do we take what this PhD who's written the books on PhD level statistics classes to, in order to synthesize and get insight and democratize it. And we wanted the ability to be able to create form or survey or, you know, some way to collect data and analyze it in real time and spit out the results. And we thought if we could do this online and we could do something that was very sophisticated, but make it simple, which, which actually if you think about it, most technology that has caught on has been taking a process or creating something that used to be really hard to do and making it simple and take it in the hands of everyone. And we thought that the workers today and the knowledge workers, this is where it would be. And it's it's taken, you know, 14 or 15 years, but that's really what's come to fruition. We started early into academia. I recruited my brother out of Google, who was running product and a third of the world's internet traffic and search. And I was I, I convinced him to come work with us. And was that uh, easy convincing? Oh, it was the hardest sell I've ever had to make in my life. And oh. it, you know, it was me and a and a co-founder. We were starting with who who I had known, and we didn't have any money. 
and we were completely bootstrapped. So I, I basically for two years hounded my brother and here he is on one of the greatest rides. He was running China. And I, I said, you got to come back to Utah and work with me. And, and I, I, I used every ounce of guilt or everything I had that he was going to, he's the oldest sibling and he's going to let a whole nation down if he doesn't. And, and <laughs> it was uh, pretty good. And, and, you know, when he came back and kind of took over the product and inside and really thought about what the future from a product standpoint would look like in this new world of being able to have real-time insights, it just took off. And, you know, I don't think it would have been able to take off the way I had earlier, both on a product market fit and a timing standpoint, but also on just our ability to actually go do something great. And so it's a, it's a long story. I think that you know, most people think to do something great, it's it's going to take a couple years. And I think those are such outliers. I think for the rest of the world, especially in the enterprise, you know, 10, 12, 13 years are, are, are really what it takes. And and I'm actually appreciative of that because it takes a long time to get going. It also takes a long time to get out. If you, if you can do something in two or three years, someone else is going to be able to do it in a year and a half. Listen, I know, I, know, I know what it's like in terms of getting out. I speak to all the VCs. But in terms of building the business there, I do want to discuss one of your investments is Brian Schreier at Sequoia, because he said that you built the business on first principles and not on business books. So I'd love to hear what you think Brian really means by this and what that suggests about yep. your kind of initial company building. I'm not sure what Brian meant, but <laughs> no, he's talking about us, which is super complimentary. And I think that we never were in Utah and we never built a business to go get funding. We never built a business to go sell. We built a business to keep and we built a business where it's got to be bigger than Ryan and it's got to be bigger than the founding team and Jared. It's got to be bigger than all of us. This is an opportunity. We're trying to build something that's going to be around for the next 40 years, 50 years. And if you're, if you're building that way, it's actually a totally different playbook than if you're building something that it's got to work for you. And maybe that's as far as you're thinking. And that's just how we've always thought about it. And being in Utah helps that a little bit because we're, we're left alone and there's not a lot of noise and we're able to put our heads down and really go to work. But that's the lens that we try to think about how we build qualities. Like, what are the right decisions? What are right for the employees? What are right for the customer? What's right for this product? And maybe, you know, I think if you go back to our academic setting, I mean, for five years, we stayed in a basement and called on the academic market. There wasn't a VC in the world that would sit and bet on that plan. You've got a really needy customer who has no money and wants to do a bunch of one-off stuff and they can sit and play around with your product all day. It's just not a good business model. But if you look at it now, every single academic higher ed institution in the world uses Qualtrics. We have a million academic users that are popping out annually. And throughout the course of time, everyone's getting trained on our product and our platform. And it's a you know it's been a 10 to 14 year bet or play. And so I think that's what he He's describing when he says fundamental principles. But in the time, no one ever thought that that was sexy or said that was a good idea. It was actually opposite. People were laughing at us. Can I ask, is that building without a liquidity event in mind? And do you, how do you pitch that then to VCs who often have liquidity events in mind and timescales and horizons in mind? So, so fortunately enough, I've never had to pitch a VC. And so I don't know what that really looks like. We, we, we've been cash flow positive from the beginning. And I think more companies should work on that and, and try to get to that state. And it's a foreign state. And I understand the reasons why we could go out early or why people would want that early on. But 
I believe that there's kind of an incubation period of every idea or every company. And a lot of people take funding during that incubation period. And you really don't know what's what's right. And I'll give you an example of this is like when we first went into academia, we thought we'd just go to the CIO and we'd sign a license with the university. Well, that was wrong. And then we went to the research group because they're doing a bunch of research and we thought that's where we go. Well, they didn't buy it. And we're six months in. And then we went to you know the business school and they didn't buy it. And I'm now nine months in on this journey of like how to get customers. And when we went, we ended up, you know, a year and a half into this finding that if we had professors who was passionate about us, then they would tell their department who would buy it. And then the university would get one of the schools on board and then a school would get another school and another school. And the next thing you know, we're back at the CIO working out a a university-wide deal. And so that took about two and a half years to figure that out. And what would have happened if I would have had a ton of funding and a bunch of money I probably would have never been able or we would have never been able to figure out like how to navigate all of that. And so I believe that creativity comes from resource constraint and I believe innovation comes from resource constraint. You know, you're never you're never clipping coupons if you've got 50 million dollars in your bank account. And I think that that's the necessary forcing function to be able to to actually do something great. So when it comes to the venture capital side and when you're pitching VCs, I, I'm not very familiar with that. But the way we thought about it was if we're going to have a business partner to come in, then they need to see eye to eye with us and they need to have that vision. And so we were cash flow positive in 2009. People started reaching out to us. I remember Excel Partners who Excel and Sequoia, they led our Series A. Excel had reached out for three years and I just kept saying, I wouldn't even respond. And I just kept saying, stay around the hoop because I don't know when something's going to take place, but I promise I will give you a shot if that happens. And they flew out here. They were always out here. They were chasing us. And, and Jared, my brother, had worked with Brian and Schreier at Google. And so when we got to the point, we said, hey, we want the best partners we can we can be. And if you look at who we put on our board, we put Brian Schreier, who was, he was younger. I mean, our age and Ryan Sweeney, who's our age. And if you look at what both of them have done in the venture community, their trajectory has been the same as ours. And so Ryan Sweeney's in Excel, they put on a clinic in late stage investing that I don't think anyone in tech has ever seen before. It's, it's awesome. And, you know, Brian sits on the board of Dropbox. It's been an amazing ride. And that's been part of the fun is to grow with with these individuals, but there are partners. And if they're not bought into the vision of Qualtrics and where we want to take this, then we made bad moves. But I'll tell you, I'm I'm probably one of the only tech founders I know that is is where we are as far as scale, who can look back and say there's not one regret or not one thing they would do different on the funding side, including the partners they brought in and the equity that they gave up. I'm just so intrigued then in terms of kind of you said about kind of stay near in case we do have an event that requires capital. What was it then in 2012 when you were, as you said, cash flow positive and the business was thriving? What was that kind of catalyst for you guys realizing that now was the time for venture funding and you wanted to take Excel and Sequoia's money. Yeah, so it was an incredibly tough decision. Here I am with my father, my brother, and another co-founder, Stuart, and we were ripping off some pretty good distributions, <laughs> to be honest, and from a cash standpoint. And there was this idea that, hey, maybe we're being short-sighted here. We, you know, we were close to coming up on fifty million dollars in in sales and you know fifty percent profit margins, one hundred percent bootstrap. And we thought, wait a minute, and we started to see this vision that we had in two thousand two. Here we are, 
eight, nine, 10 years later, starting to play out. And all of these students were graduating and people were going into the enterprise and saying, oh my gosh, Qualtrics isn't just surveys. Qualtrics is, we're going to run all of our customer feedback on Qualtrics. So, you know, currently we power nine different airlines. We power all the feedback for healthcare.gov. And, you know, we have 160,000 net promoter score studies, NPS studies running on Qualtrics. So people are like, this is the de facto NPS product. And then people were like also using us on the employee side and doing, you know, the second use case on Qualtrics has become doing all of their employee feedback and 360 reviews. And it was this idea that I don't need to go pay some expensive group anymore. I can actually do it on Qualtrics. And so we saw this multi-billion dollar opportunity and we had to really have an honest discussion with ourselves. Are we going to go all in and put all of our chips in here or not? And it was probably one of the hardest decisions we had to make. And then if we are, who are we going to bring in that's going to help us get there? Because we're giving up a lot. We're bringing someone else in the tent. It's nice to own 100% of your company. And I think that's where it came out. And then we, and I went around the table and to be honest, you know, my father and my brother, Jared didn't leave Google to come work for someone. We left Google to become founder. And we decided we were going to go raise a series A. And, you know, I wanted to raise a hundred million dollars series A. <laughs> I thought that would be a cool thing. And, and mind that's you, this is, a, yeah, this is in 2012. We raised a $70 million series A. It was Sequoia and Excel. And it was the largest Series A or first-time investment since 2008. Look, I don't, I don't regret any of it. I think it was, I think it was definitely the right move. It was the right move at the right time. We were very deliberate on it, and we got the partners we wanted. And I think that's more important. We never optimized funding for economics. We had term sheets at 100 and 150 million dollars more than what we went with. And I think that's the part that people don't understand. If you're going to go and create something big, it's going to be a rounding error at that point, anyways. Get in with the partners that are going to help you with the largest chance of success to get there and people that you jive with and people that you want to go into work with every single day and people that you want to be your first call when you've got a problem. And I think we've done a phenomenal job at that. And I love going to board meetings. I love, I love sitting there and my, my partners give us you know, the most incredible direct feedback. And it's not because we're all best friends, but it's because we respect each other and we're close and we've gone on this journey together and they can actually tell me more than anyone, maybe besides my wife. Where we're messing up, where we're messing up and what we need to work on. And I love that dynamic. And I see a lot of these vanity boards and people out there that have these big hitters and all of these different things, but you go and you actually get under the, under the tent and it's a mess internally. Talking of that dynamic, the kind of core to that is transparency, is it not? Yeah. I mean, transparency is the number one component of Qualtrics. And I think it's starting to become, as you, as you kind of make a generational shift within the, the work environment and also in the way that the world's working is we're probably one of the most radically transparent companies companies that are out there both internally and I think we're pretty transparent with our customers as well but you know the idea of transparency is that everyone's basically an insider and you know, we've gone from 600 employees to 1200 employees in one year we've gone from one office to eight offices and we spend a lot of time and a lot of money communicating and over communicating if people don't have what they need to come in and do their job they're not going to be successful. And, and, and if, I, if I just take this back to basics 
principles of what I've seen because Qualtrics is a series of 20 startups built into 15 years. Where we started is not where you end up. And every time we start, it's the wrong place anyways. And so we just get out into the ocean and navigate. Companies fail for two reasons. They either get internally focused on each other or they get externally focused in a million different directions and, and can't execute. And I'm seeing this constantly. You know, We all have a bunch of money. If anyone has a pulse right now, they're able to raise money. And we all have smart engineers. So why are there winners and losers? You know, why, for example, did Microsoft kind of so-called lose its way for a while? They have brilliant people and a ton of money, right? So it, be- it comes down to execution. And so we want to make the default within Qualtrics to share. We want to share everything. You know, we have a we have an all-hands meeting every Thursday. And there's Kim Malone Scott, Kim Scott, who's my CEO coach and along an old Googler in Apple University, she created this thing called Whoops, where we've, we've incorporated where we stand up and someone can get the monkey every week if they've messed up. And, you know, we're not promoting people to mess up, but we want it safe to be able to communicate. We're completely transparent of what it, what everyone's doing every week. We build internal systems, and we've spent a lot of time building our internal systems as we scaled so that everyone can see what everyone else is doing. So if someone's saying, hey, something's not built in engineering or engineering's lazy, no, they can look and see, no, actually engineering stood up three, three new data centers that no one saw and no one felt, and it was a perfectly executed transaction with standing up these, these data centers. And so that's what we're trying to go for within Qualtrics, and it's and it's extremely expensive, and it, you have to be very very thoughtful around it. Do you ever think transparency can be detrimental, potentially in funding rounds, potentially in acquisition talks, potentially in exit talks, in terms of maybe disaligning the team, causing the team to stop? Often with acquisitions, if there's acquisition talks and the team knows about it, it can cause kind of productivity lapses. Is there yeah. ever a sense of too much transparency is detrimental. Look, you have to be thoughtful, but I'm pretty straight up and I'm pretty straightforward. And that's just my style. I don't I don't have time to mess around with politics. I don't have time to mess around with life life's too short. And you know, we've got to be able to trust our team. And are, are, are there situations where people can't manage that? Yeah, obviously. I mean we have a principle of Qualtrics that's called no minor lapse of integrity. There's literally no minor lapse of integrity. And you know, we have to educate people and that's part of it. But the opposite of transparency, which would be like opaqueness or, or having something that's closed. I never want to be a part of that. That's like the government. That's like, that's like a lot of different things that, that, that I never want to ever see. And, you know, part of the reason that you can become a founder and entrepreneur is that you can write your own story and, you know, we get to create this the way we want and there's no playbook. There's no rule book. I've done everything wrong since the second we started and it's worked out beautifully. And so that's the way that we want to live. And once people taste this type of environment, it's pretty tough for them to go somewhere where they experience the opposite. Yeah. Um, I saw the basketball court. It looks pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. We have a basketball court in our lobby and, you know, I I couldn't figure out what to do with the lobby. And someone said, Hey, let's put a basketball court in. And we're like, okay. But more than that, I think it's a great, when you come into our headquarters, I think it's a great reminder. It's like, look, don't take yourself too seriously. (laughs) Right. And, and that's, that's part of it. And I'd love to dive into a quick fire round with you now. We call it 60 seconds after. So let's do, I know you're a data nerd like me. So what are your productivity tools? So my product, my look, my my job as CEO changes every three months, and so does the way I, I go about the job. What used to work for me two or three years ago does not work for me now. And so the very first thing that I do to be productive is I, I've tried to understand Ryan and how Ryan works. 
you know, my brother Jared's probably the most productive person and I, I know and anyone who knows him kind of says the same thing. He gets more done in a, in a, in a week than most people do in, in a quarter. What works for him does not work for me. And so I know, for example, that I'm very, I wake up very early in the mornings. I, no matter what time I go to bed, I am up at four or five, six. And I know that that's my go time. I'm on like supercharged speed at that time. And I'm two to three X more productive than I am at say four o'clock in the afternoon. So I take all of my creative tasks, everything that I haven't ever done before, and that's the time that I do it because I want to make sure that I'm not using kind of the best part of my brain for email, for example. (laughs) The second thing is it's not uncommon for me to, I work through lunch. I don't have lunch meetings because I'm still part of my productivity, my productive time. So I'll have breakfast meetings if they're important, but I either take time or go to breakfast every morning, either by myself or I'll sit in my car and I make notes of what my plan is for the day. And I think it's really important that as you start scaling and you start getting bigger, that you have a personal plan because the day will run you if you don't run it. And what does success look like for me that day? Like, what is it going to be that that day that I'm going to fist pump as I walk out of the building and say, I got what I wanted to get done. And then everything else is going to happen either way. And everything's going to happen during your day. But I do not want to show up to the office without a plan ever. And the plan can change. Everything's there. But I'm, I want to be thoughtful about my day in my time. And then you have a round table at home for the for the dinner table conversation to encourage conversation. What tips do you have at work to encourage culture and engagement? Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of tips. I think understanding what everyone else is doing so that there's empathy for the rest of the organization is probably number one. So all we're trying to do is make sure that everyone knows what everyone else is doing and, and doing that in a, in a variety of different ways. And the reason why is because innovation might come from another group. We don't want them totally focused on on that, but we we have that entirely transparent. If there are issues where you know one person comes to me and maybe they they're not happy with someone else, I mean one of the things that I believe in is 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 complete escalation. Where if someone's talking to me about someone else, we're doing it in the room together. And so really being able to teach and have open conversations and and remove me out of it as much as possible by by allowing open and positive feedback. Kim Scott calls this radical candor throughout the organization solves a lot of a lot. Problem. I'm intrigued though, as kind of you look at your incredible success now with Qualtrics and the incredible company that it's become. What do you know now though that you wish you'd known when you started out with your brother and your father? I feel like we're just getting started with Qualtrics. I mean, this is my this is my last job. This is all I'm doing. I'm still young, and I don't really have another another idea. <laughs> what uh, what what I wish I would have known now that I probably didn't know then is maybe early on I wasn't as confident in this thought of you can do it your way and it's you against the world and that's probably the first thing is it's kind of been us against the world the whole time and I don't think that's going to change and that's kind of where I, I thrive and I love that the second component is that Rome wasn't built in a day and it's going to take time and if you can keep your optionality from a funding or a partner standpoint to actually give you a long enough runway, entrepreneurs will figure it out. The problem is, is when they put a, a bomb or a, a stopwatch on their back, every bet that we've ever made has taken a little longer than we anticipated. 
but it was there, you know, for the most part, they've always been the right bets. And if you looked at any of them across any part of the time, every single one had a point where you were like, ah, this isn't going to go. And so I think that success and execution comes from a lot of little iterations. And if you look at Gmail, when Gmail came out, it was horrible, but it's, it's, it's been a bunch of little iterations. I mean, I used to think I'm never getting off of Yahoo and you kind of look at the change there. That that's kind of how the world works. And so you don't want to limit or take a snapshot of one point in time and you want to give yourself that optionality. That took a long time for me to understand because I'm not that patient of a person. So I've had to learn to be a little bit more patient, but at the same time have that fire and rigor of like, we need to build yesterday and we're going now and we're still going to do incredibly hard thing. But that's been hard. You got to play the long game. And then you stated before the nine important minutes of your interaction, particularly with, with the kids, uh, being waking up home from school and before bed. If you were to surmise that and align that to your work day, how would you align that nine minutes? So I don't, I don't try to really predict what's going to happen in the workday because my job as CEO is, is to be there and be ready and drive a lot and help remove roadblocks from people. But I would say that I would take all nine of those minutes and instead of spreading them out through the day, make sure that you're starting your day and make sure you're getting your day off onto the right foot. And I think that's really important to me. I just found that once it starts going south, it's pretty tar- it's pretty hard to like turn it around. And so how in the world can you make sure that first of all, we all, we all want to feel like we're individual contributors because very few people I know get happiness out of being a high paid router, just routing things. <laughs> so our, our natural value is you talk to CEOs. I was most happy when I was coding. I was most happy when I was selling. I was most happy when I was doing this. Well, every day you should get to feel like you're an individual contributor and I think you will become most happy if you've got a plan to do that every single day. And then typically you can do that in an hour or two. I have a friend who studies organizations and he's like, most people only have three or four productive hours in the day where they're actually getting stuff done. So if I can come and, for example, from seven to eight or eight to nine in the morning, get my individual contributor process done, then I'm going to feel great and successful that day. And the busier I get, the more effective I become. So it's, it's, it's multiplied. Then I'm happy with the rest of the course of business. And I'm much more joyful to be around because I know that you've got to get a little bit personally to be able to give to everyone else. And, you know, if your batteries are low, it's going to be tough to help charge everyone else's. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I have to say, when I read the article in Fortune, it was one of those moments where you you really, <laughs> in, in a lovely way, you really just hate you because you're the loveliest guy. You're incredibly uh, chilled and you just have in- achieved the most insane amounts with Qualtrics. Do you know what I mean? There's kind of nothing wrong, which is really infuriating, but I can't emphasize enough how great it is to have you on the show. And to well, I think, I, think the media, I think the media paints a pretty rosy picture. I mean, things are going well. We We've been super fortunate and, and, and lucky. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about luck. Anyone would have thought what we were working on in 2002 would become where it is. They're, they're crazy. But I also believe that you just need to be thoughtful and you get to write your own story. So write it the way you want. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really mean that. It was so special to have you on. Okay, awesome. Thank you. 
And again, I want to say a huge thanks to Ryan for giving up his time today to come on the show. As I said, it was so fantastic to have him on. And you really must check out the article in Fortune on how Ryan juggles running a unicorn startup and juggling a family. Uh, it really is absolutely fantastic. And I do also want to say a huge thanks to Jason Lampkin at Sasta for the intro to Ryan's day without which the show would not have been possible. And we'd absolutely love to see you at Sasta Annual 2017. And all you have to do to get an invite to the hottest party in town is enter the promo code Drinks with Harry when you purchase your tickets. And you'll not only get 20% off, but you'll get tickets to our very special Mojito Happy Hour. It would be fantastic to see you there. We always so appreciate the support and I cannot wait to bring you next week's episodes.